am Bertresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. People living with IBD, and especially those who are receiving biologics during the pandemic, are coping with a lot of unknowns at this moment. While we're waiting for the science to catch up, we all know we should be staying home, washing our hands as much as possible, and observing physical distancing when we do need to go out for supplies or when getting outside for some exercise. This is to protect ourselves, our families, and the more vulnerable members of our community, including older people. On this episode, I have Jamie Horrigan of Sweetened by Nature. I asked Jamie to talk with me because she lives with Crohn's disease and gastroparesis. She has a fabulous blog with incredible recipes. She's a fourth-year medical student, and she was diagnosed with COVID-19. She's the perfect person to give us her experience with symptoms and testing, as well as an explanation of something called a cytokine storm and how that ties into COVID-19 and people living with IBD who are immunosuppressed. So Jamie, thank you so much for jumping on the line and talking with me today. We have a lot to discuss, so I want to jump right in. Could you let me know a little bit about your Crohn's diagnosis? And then I believe you also have gastroparesis as well. Yeah. So for some people, they noticed kind of a drastic change overnight where they were completely normal and then developed all of these GI symptoms. For me, I've had GI symptoms for as long as I can remember, even back to being a young child and even um, as a toddler. And I always tried to hide my symptoms, especially for my friends who wanted to be the kid that had to urgently leave the soccer field to go to the bathroom or leave during her own birthday party after I don't know, eating the cake and pizza and that upsetting my stomach. And at the time, I really didn't know that my symptoms were abnormal. I just thought this was how my stomach was and I just had to deal with it. So in fifth grade, I developed a viral meningitis. And after that illness, I frequently had mouth sores and they were associated with the GI symptoms. I mean, looking back, that was kind of a clue, like maybe this was some kind of trigger or um, the start of something more. In ninth grade, my pediatrician, just at a routine physical, asked about any GI symptoms, particularly if I had diarrhea. And that was when I kind of sheepishly answered and said it had been a long time problem. And she referred me to GI. And the GI thought at the time it was probably IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. And we could try to do a colonoscopy if my symptoms worsen. But at 14 years old, um, a colonoscopy really freaked me out. So I opted to wait. By 12th grade, we decided enough was enough. And he thought I should, you know, we thought that we could finally schedule the colonoscopy just to see if there's nothing more that we're missing. And he found a little bit of inflammation. But at the time, he thought it was kind of post-viral and that I had been recovering from a virus. And these were just the changes as I was healing from the virus. And he suggested that I cut out gluten and dairy and kind of work with his nutritionist to see if that would help my symptoms at all. And they did. I mean, I did this for a long time and my symptoms improved kind of as I got older, the symptoms did seem to worsen. Um, throughout college, I kind of played around with my diet a lot for symptom relief, you know, tweaking things here and there. But by October of my senior year of college, it was like everything completely changed overnight. Um, I went from being able to manage my symptoms just fine to having constant diarrhea and night sweats to the point where I had to change my clothes three to five times a night. Um, and I slept on a towel because so I wouldn't have to change my sheets multiple times a night. I could just change the towel much easier. I had knee pain that was so severe that just sitting in class or laying in bed was excruciating. And eating quickly became a chore. I mean, I could not eat much in the late afternoon. It was easier to eat um, earlier on in the morning and around lunchtime. Um, so I tried to eat most of my calories then because if I eat 
after the afternoon or even at night, then I'd be up all night nauseous and sometimes vomiting. Um, by December of that year, I'd lost 17 pounds, which I really didn't have to lose. And my GI doctor first ordered a gastric emptying scan, which revealed I did have gastroparesis, meaning my stomach did not empty as quickly as it should. And that caused a lot of my upper GI symptoms, kind of the nausea and the vomiting. But it didn't quite explain my lower GI symptoms and a lot of the abdominal pain I was experiencing. And then a few weeks after that um, gastric emptying scan, I had a colonoscopy and upper endoscopy, and that finally revealed the Crohn's disease uh, much clearer. And as scary as the diagnosis was, part of me was relieved because if I knew what was wrong with me um, and if I had a name, then um, we could come up with a treatment plan. And thankfully, as we treated the Crohn's, the gastroparesis largely went away kind of over the next year. And now I rarely experience um, symptoms of it, thankfully. You said that you kind of thought it was normal when you were younger and when you were a teenager. And it's interesting because I've heard that a lot from people who were diagnosed very young. But you were dealing with this for a really long time before it worsened and you got to the point where you, first of all, wanted to have a colonoscopy. And I identify with that, not wanting to have one as a 14-year-old girl. But then it must have had a severe effect on your school, on your social life. How did you cope with all of that? Yeah, I think... I became a little bit shyer because of the whole situation. I mean, I had had some friends that would be like, oh, you have Jamie disease or Jamie syndrome, which I mean, was all fun and games, but it, it did get to me. I mean, being at a track meet and urgently having to get up and go or during practice, or I remember a few times being in school where I had to leave the bathroom more than once during the hour long class. And you're not supposed to do that. And I, it's not like I was going to go tell my teacher and be like, hey, like I need to go urgently use the bathroom and just kind of sneak out. And thankfully, I was a good student. So no one really questioned me. But it, it was definitely awkward at times, especially in the car. I mean, as, as you know, I mean, having urgent bathroom problems in the car is never fun, especially when you have friends in the car with you. Thankfully, my parents and my sister were always supportive, but it definitely was hard. Yeah, the car is the worst, like hands down, trapped, nowhere to go. It's the worst. I know my mom would always kill me, want to kill me because say we stopped at one place to go to the bathroom and then sometimes I would think I'd be done get in the car and be like oh no we have to go back but I never wanted to go back in the same store so I'd always make us go somewhere else. <laughs> these, are little, these are the little things that we live with living with IBD that people don't usually know about. So yep. <laughs> your friends had like a shorthand that they would call it Jamie disease? Is, is that how that went? And so I'm assuming that, first of all, you didn't have any accommodations while you were in school. And then second of all, that you didn't know anybody else who was living with IBD or anything similar. Yeah, I don't even think I knew what IBD was. Um, I actually, so I met someone in college that said he had Crohn's. I had no idea what the disease was. And all he told me was he stays away from dairy. And as long as he takes his medicine, he's okay. And that was all I knew about Crohn's then. Well, that's not too bad. I mean, that's pretty good. That's better than meeting someone who has really, really had a hard time with it. And then you're scared about what's to come for yourself. I saw on Instagram that you posted because you are in the middle of what we are all in the middle of, and you are in it in a very intimate and profound way. You were diagnosed with COVID-19. Would you start a little bit by telling me about what the symptoms were, how that all began, and, and did you suspect it was COVID-19 at first? Yeah. So I kind of had the classic symptoms of COVID-19, so I kind of suspected it, but more so because um, my cousins and I had just traveled internationally, and, um, and I also had potential exposures at the hospital where I work. 
But on our way back from the trip, one of our cousins got a text that um, one of his close friends that he had just spent another week with had tested positive uh, for COVID-19. So at that point, we knew that we had all been exposed to our cousin who potentially had it. So we decided to all self, uh, there was a group of 17 of us that went away and we all decided to self-quarantine uh, just to be safe. And this was all before kind of everything was, it, it was not declared a pandemic quite yet. I mean, all the stores were still open. People were still going to work. I mean, restaurants and bars hadn't closed yet. Um, there was no toilet paper shortage as of yet. So it was kind of, I don't want to say it was a big deal, but it was bold that we decided to to self-quarantine because people hadn't really started doing that yet. And um, we definitely didn't want to expose any more people if we potentially had it. And thankfully, we did quarantine because most of us ended up developing it. I guess during the trip, I had been, I left with a, with a slight sore throat and then developed a cough on the trip. And I don't know if that was a separate cold that I had that went out. Because by the end of the trip, it was gone, largely. But then two days after we got home, my sister started with um, fever and chills and um, her eyes hurt which I thought was kind of strange like she said she described it as anytime she would move her eyes they would hurt and she kept icing them and she really doesn't complain about anything so it was kind of odd for her to complain about that and then she said her skin was really sensitive kind of like if you touched her it would send shocks and tingles throughout her body so that was just a big change for her um so her symptoms lasted about 48 hours and then the fevers and everything went away but then she developed some bad congestion and she couldn't smell. And as her symptoms were improving, mine started. So four, four days after we got back from the trip, I started with the fever, um, the chills, headache, body aches. My cough that I thought had been improving came back and my sore throat came back as well. And this time I developed some sores kind of in the back of my throat that actually started to bleed. And those are pretty um, difficult to deal with. And then I became congested, congested and quickly lost all sense of smell and taste besides the taste of salt. And I couldn't even smell anything pungent, even like vinegar, rubbing alcohol. I tried and nothing. So kind of before, before I kind of suspected it, I said, this could be COVID-19. But I was also like, my symptoms are still kind of mild compared to what you're hearing in the media about all these people, especially in China at the time, being on ventilators and it being super severe. So I was like, this could just be a cold or just a little virus from traveling. So I didn't quite know. When I lost my sense of smell and taste, I was also like, I don't want to say alarmed, but I, I thought it was odd. I, th I thought my congestion was really bad. So maybe it had, I don't know, damaged some of the cells in my nose or something. And I had maybe gotten a sinus infection and that's why I couldn't smell or taste. But then a couple of days later, it was all over the news that one of the common symptoms was losing taste and smell, especially in, in younger people. And that might even be the only symptom for some people. So it was at that point that I knew I probably had COVID-19 as well as my sister. I guess the other kind of symptom we had was appetite loss, which was pretty profound. I mean, we were still eating, but it, it was just like our bodies were so revved up. Probably the metabolism was going pretty strong that um, I had personally lost 12 pounds um, after kind of two weeks of symptoms. Wow. It sounds like though that a lot of the symptoms you were experiencing don't really have an overlap with Crohn's or gastroparesis, except maybe the appetite loss. So it wasn't something where you were wondering, oh, could I just be experiencing a flare-up? Yeah, not at all. I mean, on the trip, I did have one day with really, really bad GI symptoms, which I know 50% of people present with COVID with GI symptoms. So that could be part of it, or it could have just been my Crohn's having a bad day. So it's really hard to know. But, but during after I got back, my stomach did 
you know, it was pretty normal for me. Right. Yeah. It's it's hard to know. There's a lot of people right now who are saying, oh, my gosh, I have some really bad diarrhea, but how am I supposed to know what's going on? So you knew that you had you were basically like a contact of a contact of someone that was positive. Mm -hmm. Did you decide at that point to get tested? And what was that process like getting in touch with anyone in healthcare to to seek treatment or seek testing? Yeah. So by the time we were back and everything, so our cousin had admitted to having some GI symptoms during the trip and then he lost his sense of smell completely, so, which we didn't realize on the trip. So he, we realized he probably had it and then he later tested positive for it. And then for me, it was, thankfully it was really easy to get tested just because I qualified in my state um, in Massachusetts I, as a immunocompromised person with recent international travel, classic symptoms, likely direct contact with um, someone with the virus who is my cousin and the fact that I'm a healthcare worker and couldn't expose other patients or go back to work until I knew that I, I didn't have the virus myself. So I just called my doctor, told them my symptoms, and we did kind of a little you know, telemedicine visit. Um, and a couple hours later, I had an appointment that evening to get tested. So everything happened really, really fast. And it was quick. I mean, we drove to the hospital parking garage where they had set up the drive-through testing area. Um, a couple of brave nurses greeted us at the car and they were all gowned up. And they directed us to this parking spot. So we went over there and then a nurse came over to my window. Um, we unrolled the window and she quickly explained the process of swabbing my nose and the, the importance of getting a deep sample. If you've looked at diagrams of the nasopharyngeal swab, it, it almost looks like they're going so far back in your kind of through the nose. It's like almost touching your brain. So it's obviously not touching your brain, but it's, it's definitely a deep swab to get a good sample. So she swabs both my nostrils and it was, I don't want to say it was painful. It was uncomfortable, but it, it not pleasant, but not definitely not painful. And then we were on our way within seven minutes of arriving. So it was all really, really quick. The worst part was waiting for the results. So my sister, her, she has a different doctor. So she was sent to a different um, drive-through test to get, to get tested at a different hospital. And her results came back in less than 24 hours. And her doctor called and said they were positive. And at that point, we knew that I also likely had it as well. Um, but I had to wait five days for my, my results to come back officially. Right. And I'm hearing also, too, from some folks that when one member of the household tests positive, they may not test the other members of the household because then at that point, it's just presumed that you that you have it. And so you should behave accordingly. Right. So she she tested positive. At that point, you were probably thinking, yes, I'm also positive, mm -hmm. even waiting for your results. Yeah. And. When they came back first with your sister's positive test, what kind of instructions were given to her? And then were any different ones maybe given to you when you received your positive diagnosis? So when they called her, first they checked in to make sure she was still doing okay, breathing normally and everything. And they said the whole family needs to stay home and um, definitely self-isolate. So at that point, the state didn't call. So I don't know if hers was, was just reported to a different person, but when my test came back positive a couple hours later, a, a public health nurse called and she said that um, our whole family needs to self-isolate. My sister and I should stay in our rooms, even for meals and avoid our parents. And every time we use the bathroom, uh, we should disinfect it completely, even when it's just the two of us using it uh, to protect everyone else in the house. So that was, I guess, the slight different instructions we were given. What was that day-to-day -day like sort of in your room and how long did they tell you to do that for? That's where the difference comes in is when they're saying, how long are we contagious? And I think I think the problem is no one really knows. Is it two weeks after you present with symptoms? Is it 
three to 10 days after your symptoms resolve. And I think nobody truly knows. And it's not like they're swabbing people to make sure they're negative um, after because of the shortage and everything. Um, So the public health nurse, what she told us is our family should be quarantined for at least two weeks after I presented with symptoms since I presented after my sister. And then we kind of added, she added a couple of days based on our recovery. So, and thankfully our parents never got it. I mean, if they did, they're asymptomatic and they were, I mean, the first few days we were home, we didn't know we were sick. And obviously they hugged us when we got off the plane and we were living in the same house and everything, being careful, but not that careful at first. Yeah. So that's interesting. So your parents are fine, but they weren't on the trip with you. They weren't. But when we came back, we must have been extremely contagious is what I'm thinking, just because of how they talk about, I think, a spring break trip and like 40 out of 70 people that were on that plane got it. So I I don't know. There's a lot of people that get asymptomatic infections. I know there was a day my mom had a headache, but was her headache coronavirus or was it just a headache? It's, it's so hard to know. That has to be such a weird and it's sort of horrible thing to just be like every little thing you're like, you know, when someone else in the house is positive, you're wondering every little thing that happens to you. Is it, is, you know, is it happening? Is it happening? I know my dad did the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Practically though, you're, you're in your rooms. Obviously you still have to eat. You still have to do certain things. Like, was there anything that you guys sort of did? Did you kind of like have a little bell? I'm coming out of my room. I got to go to the bathroom. Like, how did you manage that so that you were sort of isolated from your parents? No, honestly, my sister and I hung out the whole time because we both had it. So the first few days, we didn't feel very well. So we were, you know, sleeping a lot, watching TV, just hanging out with each other, hanging out with our cats, like doing that kind of thing. Um, and then once we started feeling better, we were able to get out for a short walk most days. And I mean, our neighborhood's pretty quiet. So we were able to get outside and, you know, maintain a big dis- distance between us and other people. We played a lot of board games, got the old GameCube and PlayStation out, uh, played some games that looking back, we hadn't played since like 2007, did a lot of puzzles, did some virtual schoolwork. And then thank goodness for technology, we were able to stay in contact with our friends and you know FaceTime everybody. You work in a hospital. When you go to go back to your job, will they have to test you again? I don't know. So, so right now I'm a fourth year medical student and set to graduate in May. And as of right now, they suspended rotations for the rest of the year. So I won't be entering the hospital as of now until June when residency starts. So I imagine by that point, they it'll obviously be completely out of my system. I mean, even right now, I would hope I would test negative, but I don't know. It's been like three weeks since I got sick or even longer. I think it depends on hospital policy. I have some friends that are nurses and some of them have to test negative twice before going back and then others have to be asymptomatic for 14 days. So it's hard to know. Right. There's so many unknowns right now. Was there anything that came out of isolation that was a positive in your view? Yeah. So my family spent a lot of time together and this was time that we wouldn't have had without this pandemic um, going on, or especially if my sister and I didn't get sick. So the plan for us was we were supposed to get off the plane and then both go back to school um, to finish up our our years. We're both seniors. She's a senior in, in college and I'm a senior in medical school. So we were both supposed to be, I was supposed to be in rotations. Michelle, my sister, was supposed to be uh, finishing up her year and, you know, hanging with her friends, doing all the normal senior year things. So we stayed home um, once we thought we were potentially exposed to the virus. And um, now, you know, our parents are working from home and everything. So we have all this time together where we're playing these board games we haven't played in years and going for multiple walks a day and watching TV together as a family. 
Whereas right now my parents should have been empty nesters without this pandemic going on. So that's one big positive. Uh, another is my sister and I will both be donating plasma to help sick patients in the ICU recover. And that's kind of an experimental treatment right now that has been FDA approved. And it seems to be helping some of these patients kind of fight the virus. I'm sure we can link it. There's a way to sign up if you've tested positive for COVID-19 that um, you can give all your information and they'll contact you about potentially donating plasma um, once you've recovered for about two weeks. It's almost like giving blood, except they filter the plasma out of your blood. That Those are all the proteins that help patients kind of fight the virus. And then we'll also be giving a small blood sample for COVID um, antibody research for a separate company. So those are some positive things. And then for me, in terms of returning to the hospital, I should have some immunity from the virus, which will kind of make both me feel safer about working in the hospital. And then hopefully some patients feel safer about being around me as a healthcare provider that will obviously, you know, tend to other patients, but then see others and hopefully not be a vector for disease transmission. And I think we don't know fully about immunity, but um, in terms of other viruses and other similar, similar viruses, patients that have recovered at least had immunity for some time. Um, so hopefully until there's a vaccine discovered that a lot of us that do get the virus are immune for some time. How did you find out about the ability to donate the plasma and then also to take part in the research study? Was that something that you looked up or did anyone come to you and tell you about it? Um, I follow a lot of doctors on Twitter and it seems to be a pretty good place yeah, to get. Same. <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of medical knowledge on there. Um, and, you yeah. know, the doctors are constantly posting about studies and everything. So I think one of them posted a link. Oh, no, you know what it was? My cousin donated first. So Mount Sinai in New York City asked for volunteers who had recently recovered from COVID-19, uh, if it had been over, over 14 days since they recovered, to come get tested to see if their antibody levels were high enough for donation. So my cousin got tested and he, he was told that his he has antibodies, so he definitely had it, but they weren't high enough yet. So they wanted him to come back about a week later uh, to get retested and see if his numbers were high enough. And then he could donate to the sick ICU patients. So I think it was Mount Sinai that pioneered this. And now there's a, a website through, I think it's Michigan State, where you can put your information in and um, they'll contact you about donating locally if you meet the qualifications um, and everything. So that's how I found out. And I think also lots of doctors were posting about using the antibodies to treat some of the really sick ICU patients and seeing some positive results there. I think I did see the one from Mount Sinai. So I'll look up that information and make sure that I put it in the show notes so that it's available to anybody who wants to participate in those things. Is there anything else that you want to tell people living with IBD or maybe healthcare providers about COVID-19? As of right now, I think things are looking pretty good for us IBD patients. It does not look like we're at higher risk of contracting the virus or even getting sicker from it. The International Organization for the Study of IBD has some really wonderful medication guidelines that I believe Amber has also written about on her website. And um, I'll be honest, I was a little bit nervous about being on a biologic and working in the in the healthcare field. Um, I was supposed to be on an emergency medicine rotation right now, so um, this was kind of before I had traveled and. Before I'd gotten sick, I was nervous about being on a biologic and working in the ER as it's probably, it's one of the worst places you can be in, in terms of exposures. So I was nervous about that. And then once I came down with the virus, I was a little bit nervous, but my symptoms never progressed to be that bad. So I, I kind of stayed, I stayed neutral. So, I mean, at one point, about a week into the virus, I did get some um, shortness of breath and some chest pain with exertion, but it never progressed at all. My breathing still stayed okay. It was just 
got winded after doing half a flight of stairs. And then as soon as I stopped and rested, it, it, it went away. And um, that lasted for maybe a week, but it, it never progressed to the point where I felt like I couldn't breathe. So I still f- felt safe. And also I'm on Antibio, so it's more of a targeted biologic as opposed to some of the other biologics that are more systemic. But at the same time, they're, sh- they're saying that some of these biologics could even be potential treatments for these COVID patients. And the theory is because that why some of these patients get so sick is because of something called cytokine storm. So this is when the immune system kind of overreacts to the virus and produces all of these inflammatory, like inflammatory factors called cytokines. And the immune system by overreacting can cause a patient to get really sick and really just cause a dramatic response to this virus, whereas other people might not react that badly. And for those of us on some of these IBD medications um, that are immunosuppressants, it calms down some of these cytokines. So we potentially could be in a better place because we're already on some of these medications. So maybe it'll keep our immune systems in check. But I I don't think anybody quite understands um, all the mechanisms quite yet. Um, But that's why I think I partially felt safer about being on a biologic and having, having COVID. Right. That all makes sense. And it's the same thing that I've been reading about. And unfortunately, we just don't know right now, but we're so fortunate. You mentioned on Twitter, the IBD community internationally has responded to this in such a quick and and profound and deep way. They are on top of it. And there is that registry, which I have linked to from my uh, website and my writings on COVID-19, but I'll also put it in the show notes because they're tracking patients with IBD who develop COVID-19 through a registry and then following them through uh, through recovery. So we're getting that data right now. It was somewhere in the, in the low 300s patients in that registry right now, but as that starts to go up, I mean, that's not a bad sample, but as it starts to go up, we'll learn more and more about this. And hopefully this all can help some people with anxiety because being on a biologic, having IBD, feeling as though you're vulnerable, it, it does cause a lot of anxiety. But you know, your story is so helpful and thank you so much for explaining the cytokine storm in a very succinct way that I don't think I ever could have done. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to talk to you a little bit too about your blog about Sweetened by Nature and all of the great stuff that you're cooking. Look, you know, like the pancakes you posted the other day, like Please, like I'm gonna have to make pancakes over the weekend. And I hope I can find some berries or something. So tell me about your blog and about your advocacy work in that way. Yeah, so I've been blogging since 2015, around when I was diagnosed, and I'm most active on Instagram because it's so easy to write a quick story or, um, you know, post a quick little Instagram post um, as opposed to writing on the blog. But I am pretty active on the blog as well, and I'll post recipes there. And most of them are very IBD and autoimmune friendly, where they're mostly gluten and dairy free. A lot of them are paleo. A good amount, number of them are specific carbohydrate diet friendly and also autoimmune protocol compliant. And then in addition to a lot of the nutrition things, I, I share uh, tips for medical students, general lifestyle tips for anyone. And then I'll share my story as, as a medical student um, a few weeks from graduating with my MD. In terms of future plans, I probably will be doing a lot of the same, talking you know, nutrition, lifestyle, and IBD will always be a big focus on the blog, but I might share more medically oriented posts relating to residency and what I'm learning, each rotation that I think will be valuable for the general public to learn. What kind of medicine do you think that you will practice? So my residency will be in internal medicine and um, I'm going to a program with really, really wonderful GI and um, I already have an awesome, you know, GI mentor there. I was 
fortunate enough to spend a month rotating there last summer um, with the GI department. So I'm, I'm definitely very interested in GI, trying to keep my options open, but I do love GI. That's amazing. <laughs> I love to hear it when people who live with IBD also go into healthcare and because there is nothing like, not that we want anyone to have IBD, <laughs> but there's nothing like having a healthcare provider who really, really, truly understands what it's like to live with digestive disease, whether or not you disclose to your patients. I think it changes the way that you practice medicine. So I think that's that's really wonderful. And thank you so much for talking with me and explaining all of this about COVID-19. I think it's so interesting because your background and that you developed the symptoms that you did and then getting testing and recovery, you were sort of able to cover all of the things that I think people have a lot of questions about right now. Thankfully, you're also recovering and your parents have not developed. They're staying home though still, right? Yeah, everyone's home, but they feel fine. So that's, that's so great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you so much, Amber, for having me. I had a really wonderful time kind of going over some, you know, my diagnosis and my experience with COVID-19. Hopefully this will alleviate some anxiety in other IBD patients who may be on biologics and are fearful of contracting the virus. And hopefully everyone stays well. And if they do happen to catch it, uh, recover fully kind of like I did. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hey, super listener. Thank you to Jamie Horrigan of Sweetened by Nature for agreeing to talk with me last minute in order to share her experiences in living with Crohn's disease, gastroparesis, and being diagnosed with COVID-19. You can find Jamie on Facebook as Sweetened by Nature blog, on Instagram as Sweetened by Nature, on Twitter as Jamie Horrigan, and on her blog, sweetenedbynatureblog.com. I will put all of Jamie's information in the show notes and on the episode 68 page on my site, aboutibd.com. You will also find links to my sources for the information in this episode in the show notes. For more updates, follow me as About IBD on all social media or check the COVID-19 page on my site at aboutibd.com. And as always, don't take my word for it. Check with your healthcare team about anything in regards to your IBD. Did you know you can help me keep producing this show? It's easy to do. All you need to do is subscribe in your favorite podcast app and leave a review there. If you've already left me a review, thank you very much. About IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Sound engineering is by Matt Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. Until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. (laughs) 